sermon text this morning is uh, found in Matthew chapter 24. We'll be reading verses 3 to 14. Matthew 24, verses 3 to 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is God's word. Now this chapter is about end times, uh, which is widely known uh, among Christians. Matthew 24, a familiar text when you put together all that the Bible has to say about the end times, which... uh, by notation, or just the times that precede Jesus' return. And the teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, the whole chapter, was in response to the question asked of him in verse 3. The disciples come privately, not in front of all the crowds, but privately. Well, tell us, give us the inside scoop, you know. When's all this going to happen? You're talking about going away, so you're going to come right back, right? They want to know. And, And it wasn't a curiosity question. But in answering it, Jesus emphasized closeness to him, which is our focus in this brief series. We're just taking four Sundays here. This is number three of the four. Looking at closeness to Jesus, considering what closeness to Jesus is and involves. I'm not giving you equations or formulas or follow these seven steps and voila, you're close to Jesus. And uh, one of the difficulties in presenting a a series like this of, of what in closeness to Jesus involves is that uh, there's this presumption that, that I understand it completely and totally, and <laughs> I do not. I'm a fellow learner, fellow pilgrim on this way. But we have been, if you've noticed, we're staying with Matthew in this little series. We started with Matthew 11, two Sundays ago, where Jesus says, come to me, open welcoming invitation. And then we went last week to Matthew 16, where he says, if you come after me, take up your cross and follow me. And now here in Matthew 24, Jesus responds to this question of his coming back. Come to me, Matthew 11. Come after me, Matthew 16. When are you coming back? Matthew 24. If you're curious where we're going next week, it's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Way to be close to Jesus is to be in his work of making disciples. Go. So we get come, 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 and then go. And that's our series. But he answers this question, verse 3, tell us what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And he answers this surprisingly in some ways because he's talking to disciples. Keep that in mind as we go through. He's talking to 
his men. Privately, they've come to him. This is the 12. And they say, tell us about this. And he answers by raising the possibility of being led astray and falling away. Closeness canceled out effectively. Now, how could this be, talking to disciples? Maybe the first thing we wonder is whether being led astray or falling away, you see that's how he puts it, see that no one leads you astray, verse 4, they will lead many astray, verse 5, verse 11 has the same thing about being led astray, and then he talks about falling away as well in this passage, verse 10 in particular. So we've got this idea of being led astray or this reality and this idea of falling away and first thing we wonder is whether these are real possibilities for actual Christians. Well, it would appear taking Jesus' words at face value, then yes, they are real possibilities for those who profess faith and confess him. Now, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security, uh, that when we're faithless, he remains faithful, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 2, uh, that God does not save us to lose us. And yet, I've seen apostasy. I've seen falling away. I've seen people led astray. Uh, someone considers themselves now a former follower, an ex-evangelical, uh, as uh, they're called now. Now, it doesn't mean you're no longer a Christian to have a falling out with evangelicals, not necessarily. But deconversion stories are out there. There are podcasts uh, devoted to spreading the gospel of deconversion. And, and not only are they out there, deconversion stories, they're in here in the scripture. I'm thinking of uh, 2 Timothy, the, uh, the whole letter, particularly the end, where Paul says, only Luke is with me. Demas has deserted me. All these others have gone different places. He names names throughout 2 Timothy. Uh, a few years ago, I was having lunch with a ministry leader, and, you know, we, we got together. It was pleasant lunch until he said, <laughs> I was, I don't know why I was in such a foul mood. I think I was, it was one of those days I wanted Dr. Pepper and all they had was Mr. Pibb, and so I was, I was in a foul mood. And he said, uh, he said, well, you know, our, our churches would be full if Christians would just follow the template the apostles set for discipleship. And I was kind of, you know, like I said, I was kind of haughty. And I said, have, have you not read 2 Timothy? <laughs> and we now we're having this argument over our sandwiches about uh, people left, disciples of Paul left him. It's a reality. This, you're, you're putting this in a, in, a, in a dream sequence. Yeah, I would love to have this paint by numbers approach. It doesn't work like that because the human factor is a wild card. He wasn't convinced, but we argued it nevertheless. There is a reality of falling away and being led astray and leading others who were following astray, which, by the way, is an awful category to enter. According to the apostles, it's one thing to leave yourself and say, I don't want this anymore. But the apostles held out no hope to those who took others with them. It's a very difficult position to be in, to put yourself in. Jesus does speak here, as you're looking at the passage, verse 12, he speaks here of love growing cold, which means he raises the possibility of our not staying close to him. He talks in verse 13 of enduring to the end. Now again, I believe in eternal security, 
that the Holy Spirit of God works in us for this endurance, Jesus calls for, to this endurance. I believe in eternal security, but I also believe that we go with the intended meaning of a text, whether it sits nicely on our theology shelf or not. That's called living with tension. And Jesus says our love, which is something that is cultivated, something that grows over time and through trouble, love can stop growing. Now his love never quits on us, but but our love can quit on him. Our love can bloom for a season and then die and not come back. It's a possibility. Now he's locating this specifically in the end time. Jesus is, the time before his return. And context does make a difference. In fact, he connects this reality of falling away to tribulation and to suffering, uh, to going through persecution, and, and, and context makes a difference. Scripture does seem to indicate that apostasy is more characteristic of the end times. Part of the birth pains, as he calls it in verse 8, and birth gives us the picture of something new emerging, namely the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the end times give way to, the new heavens and the new earth, new Jerusalem. We talked about this earlier this year while we were in Revelation. God will accomplish every purpose he has in redeeming people, reconciling the world to himself. His every decree he will see through to the end. He will lose no one who belongs to him. I believe that. I think you believe that too. But the human factor, how we experience on the ground here, human factor is a real wild card. I think especially in Western cultures where belief, for the most part, has come pretty easy. From this text, what does closeness to Jesus that endures to the end, what does that look like from this text? Whether the end is just the end of my life that precedes his return, or I get into the end times and and part of the generation that lives to see that and lives to see the Lord coming on the clouds, What does it require, being close to him? Well, Jesus taught his disciples about that here in Matthew 24 in the context of looking ahead to uh, when is it going to happen. He talks about closeness in the meantime, literally a meantime. But what do you and I need to develop the kind of closeness to Jesus that does not allow for my being led astray or falling away myself? What do we need? Now, I must say the most honest answer to that from the outset is none of us can guarantee we won't be led astray or fall away. I mean, the minute you believe yourself waterproof is when you discover water is incredibly good at finding the spot that it can seep in through. We take it for granted. If we make all these uh, loud professions of, well, that may happen to others, kind of like uh, Peter before the garden, but it won't happen to me. Our hearts are deceitful. The world is seductive in many directions. And so honesty compels me to say we cannot guarantee that we ourselves would not be led astray or fall away. But now I also know that I speak to the family of faith here. That means that we're the people in the world who want closeness to Jesus. (laughs) We don't want 
to be led astray. We don't want to fall away. And desire counts a lot in this. So in this interest, let me give you two things to consider from this text and we'll go into communion. Two things that I think we can pick up from this text in service to closeness to Jesus. First, we need a love for Jesus that characters cannot replace. He says in verse 12, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will go, will go cold, grow cold. So first, we need a love for Jesus that characters cannot replace. I'll tell you who characters are momentarily. And then second, we need a center that chaos cannot drive us from. A center, that is uh, a centering our lives in Jesus' way and truth and life. That chaos, whatever chaos comes about, it cannot drive us from that center. Either through fear or preoccupation, whatever. So that's our two takeaways. A love for Jesus, characters cannot replace, and a center in Jesus' way, truth, and life that chaos cannot drive us from. What's the chaos? You see it in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, nation rising against nation. Earthquakes and famines. And so you get, you get, uh, you get environmental upheaval. You get, you get, you get nations uh, in turmoil within themselves and, and, and combating one another for supremacy over the world kind of thing, over this particular territory or, or larger than that. That's the chaos, verses 6 and 7. Who are the characters? Uh, verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. He talks up in uh, verse 5 about many false Christs. The people in verse 10, looking at verse 10, they're characterized by divisiveness. The people in verse 11, they're characterized by falsehood, but they both want followers for themselves. And so that's what we're going to look at in this particular text, chaos and characters, getting close to Jesus through chaos, through characters, characters first. And the reason characters first, because there's a lot of repetition in the passage, as your eye just takes in the passage, verses 3 to 14, notice the repetition about being led astray from Jesus. I've already pointed it out, but just to put a, a fine point on it, verse 4, verse 5, verse 11, being led astray is the emphasis in those three verses. Also, we get falling away from Jesus, verse 10, verse 12. And so we need a love for Jesus that characters can't replace. By characters, I mean false prophets in this context. By characters, I mean false Christs that Jesus warns about. Verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. In verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Characters. I know, uh, what you watch or, or don't, but uh, I took in the, the Waco uh, docudrama series. Maybe some of you uh, saw that. Uh, told the story about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians and the Waco compound the FBI stormed uh, back in 1992. David Koresh was a false Christ character. I think of him readily because I just saw the, the docuseries and so he was in mind. But the interesting wrinkle in David Koresh's teaching 
was that he believed the world needed a sinful Messiah in addition to a sinless Messiah, that Jesus was the sinless Messiah in Koresh's theology, but David Koresh was the sinful Messiah. And as a sinful Messiah, common people could relate to David Koresh, and that was his, uh, that was his angle. He was an instrument of divine revelation. Though he was sinful, he admitted it. He knew he was, but he also believed he was a, a sinful Christ. He's just one name on a long list, a long list of false Christs and false prophets. They win people to themselves by directly competing, directly pursuing the allegiance that is due Jesus Christ exclusively. You know, it, it's interesting when you look inside of Christianity uh, as kind of a wholesale consideration and, and you compare it with other religions. For instance, if you compare Christianity with Buddhism, uh, one of the things that stands out very clearly is that Buddha absolutely prohibited anyone from worshiping him, whereas Jesus Christ accepted uh, people's worship. More than that, I mean, Buddha said, I don't want your worship. Christ said, I command your worship. Buddha was a theist, by the way, he didn't believe there was any uh, God. Well, false Christs, false prophets, using the terms that Jesus gives here, they, they really don't come from other religions. No, they, they more often crop up, they, they worm their way into Christian circles and they capitalize on the allegiance that belongs exclusively to Jesus. They, in essence, they, in essence say they, they, um, they replace Jesus with themselves. And they're usually characterized by extreme positions. Now, you may be thinking, listening to this, okay, I mean, that's a good point for someone, but, you know, I don't fall for Koresh types. I mean, good grief. I'm not in danger of following a false Christ. I know who my Jesus is. I'm not in danger of uh, buying into false prophets. Oh, no. Think about it this way. Are there any leaders? Are there any spiritual leaders out there that you swear by? They can never be wrong because after all, they're on the radio. You know, they, they have a lot of people listening to them. So that, that, that means they can't be wrong ever about anything. Are there any political leaders that you defend at every turn? Essentially, they're never wrong. You can't stand for anyone to find fault with your favorite. You'll immediately rise to their defense in, any, in the face of any criticism. Isn't that a little extreme? Jesus presented himself in exclusive terms. And yet, we don't ever think of Jesus as extreme. Think about that. False Christs, false prophets often promote extremes and themselves in extremity to win people to themselves, to command their allegiance. And if, if followers of Jesus get sucked into that vortex of, of someone's charisma and their platform, the love that we are to love God with God and his people, it goes cold for sake of honoring this character. Extremes like water find the, the place that they can seep in through. Why is this instruction here given to disciples? If not 
that this is a risk for every generation of disciples on up to and especially for the ones at the end before Jesus returns. We get so caught up in the nets of public personas and the narratives they generate and the influencers, all the people that jockey for our attention and affection. And when we buy in, it's just at that point that we buy in that we're most at risk of losing. As Jesus put it to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, he said, you have lost your first love. You're you're letting competition happen between me and someone else. We lose our first love. That's what happens when we give ourselves to false Christs, false prophets. Our love inevitably goes cold. Listen, Jesus will not share the platform with another. He will not bless our competing allegiances if they are replacing him in the center with someone else, anyone else, the center of our affections where he sets us to stand where we actively and attentively await his return. Second, we need a center that chaos cannot drive us from. We need a center in Jesus' way, Jesus' truth, Jesus' life that chaos cannot drive us from. What's the chaos? We've already seen it in this passage, verses 6 and 7. Wars and rumors of wars, environmental upheaval, nation against nation, nature against itself. The great way Paul put that in Romans 8, creation groans under the weight of sin, awaiting the return of Jesus. Creation itself knows that uh, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And what chaos does, I'm putting verses 6 and 7 into one word, chaos, Chaos socially, of which we've seen a lot of late. Chaos naturally. What chaos does is it creates anxiety and dread. I mean, you know this. You've experienced it. I've experienced it even in the last few weeks. Anxiety, a sense of dread and foreboding, the kind of anxiety and dread that make us want to escape the world, that make us want to say, I'm done. I'm just, I'm out, you know? Take this world and shove it. You can have it. I don't want it anymore. We clock out on engagement. We isolate with those just like me because they're safe. I want people just like I am who think just like I do, speak just like, because that's safety. That's safety. Except followers of Jesus are involved in the great story of God reconciling the world to himself. He says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Isn't that dangerous, Jesus? What if the nations don't want to listen? Guess which nation is number one on that list? You live in it. Guess which nation has spawned more competing religions than any other on the face of the earth? You're living in it. You look at verse 14 and you go, well, it's got to go to all nations and then the end will come. Who are the proclaimers in this context? It's it's us. It's every disciple. Difficult times, chaotic times, they're not times to retreat. 
not for Christians. They're not times to bow out of the action. They're times to lean in to the reality as we have it set by the gospel. Chaotic times are, are times for greater trust and obedience. Now, that's easy to say. It takes a lot of courage to do. I know it does. You ever read Jeremiah 12? I had occasion to discuss this passage with my hygienist this week. It's a chapter where Jeremiah complains to God about how bad everything is around him. And what made it worse was that these were covenant people and they looked just like the nations. They, they looked like everybody else, every pagan surrounding the people of God. The people of God looked just like them and Jeremiah is just fed up in Jeremiah 12. And he goes, Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? Do you not see? Do you not want to do anything about this? Why aren't you acting? I have it open here. Jeremiah's complaint. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. People living oblivious to God. And here's God's answer. The next verse, God answers. Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? If in a safe land you are so trusting as this, this is your trust, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan when it gets really wild? In other words, when the real chaos starts, Jeremiah, are you going to be found complaining to me or are you going to be doing, taking courage and doing my work? Which God illustrates with the imagery of running with horses. It's as if God says to Jeremiah, if you're close to me, show it by being close to me. Run with the horses. I've equipped you to be able to do that. You and I weren't called by Christ to hide, to self-protect. In fact, what we've been called to in gospel proclamation in chaotic times, it's not unlike the story the movie 1917 tells. Colson was asking me the other day, Dad, what are your favorite movies? And I said, you know, I, I'd have to put 1917 on the list. That, that may, that's a recent movie that made the list. I love that film. It tells the story of uh, two British infantrymen, World War I. Their names are Schofield and Blake. And they're given a mission to do what seems impossible. They're scared to death to do it because it requires they go behind enemy lines. They walk across the battlefield to where the Germans were bunkered to confirm that they're not there. If they are there, they're going on a suicide mission. And then to find out how far the Germans have pushed back and to get a message to a, a British uh, major who, uh, before he can make a mistake with where he's going to send his regiment. And so lives are at stake. But hope is a theme in the movie. And interestingly, the director of the movie uses trees to picture this image of hope in all of this chaos. Schofield and Blake are napping under a tree at the very beginning of the film. It's the first scene. And the very end of the, the, the film, Schofield goes and sits under a tree when his mission is complete. And so trees bookend the story. And at one point, as they make their way through all the perils that they face, Schofield tells Blake, keep your eye on the trees, fear of snipers. 
But as they make their advance, they find the German forces mowed everything down in the French countryside. They, they cut trees down. There's only one here, one there. And they come across an abandoned farm that had this grove of cherry trees and the Germans had cut all of the cherry trees down and yet they were in bloom, they were blossomed. You know what cherry blossoms look like, they're beautiful. They're littered all over the ground. The Germans even shot the cows in this farm and even the farm dog has been shot, just being destructive. Only one tree stands on the whole property. And as the two soldiers walk among the downed cherry trees, it turns out that Blake knows a lot about them because his family raised them back in England. And he's educating Schofield on the various kinds of cherries there are and cherry trees. And when Schofield expresses his sadness about the desecration of this uh, cherry tree grove, Blake says, well, you know, they'll grow again when the stones rot and you end up with more trees than before. Later on toward the end, Schofield barely escapes an occupied French village by jumping into a swollen river full of rapids. To his horror, the river eventually dumps him at a spot where all the French villagers' bodies are bloated and floating in the water, the carnage. At that point, Schofield is emotionally wasted. He's physically spent. He's seen and done all he can do. The mission has cost too much. And in that moment, you see cherry blossoms begin to fall on the river because the wind is picked up. And Schofield looks up and there's a glade of forest. More trees than there had ever been before at any point in the film. And now they're here. And furthermore, what's coming on the wind is the sound of a British regiment in the forest glade singing Wayfaring Stranger which has the words, but golden fields lie just before me where God's redeemed shall ever sleep. There are more perils for Schofield to undergo, but he, he's going to make it. And the reason I love that movie, and I'll talk a little bit about this next week, the, the role of imagination in making disciples, it's not unlike what we're sent out in the world to do ourselves. In the center of everything for us is a tree which chaos cannot drive us from. I mean Jesus' tree, his cross. Keep your eye on that tree. Guard your heart from loving anything and anyone more than the one who went there for you. There's no one worth it. Jesus completed his mission. It was never in doubt because the mission included the cross all along. Listen, as we come to communion this morning, you don't have to feel close to Jesus to take communion with us now. Feelings ebb and flow. But you do have to know what it means to be brought near to God through Jesus being treated as if he was guilty of everything you and I are guilty of and more. That he went there for us. Though he lived a flawless life, the life we should have lived, he lived. He went there to die the guilty death we should die, enduring separation from God, so we don't have to. You know, we're told every time we take these elements, that we proclaim his death until he comes. And until he comes, what does he say? Lawlessness will increase. 
things go from bad to worse. And they may go back to good, but eventually they tied back to bad. False Christs appear. False prophets taking the allegiance. Only do the true one. What are we to do? We're to keep our eye on the tree that stands at the center of all importance, no matter what else is going on around us. You've been given your communion elements. This is the time to take them out. You slip off the first little membrane.